So 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're finishing up 1 Timothy today. It's been a good journey the last about three months. Next Sunday, we're going to start in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy will take us through the middle of September, and uh, it's been a good study so far. So let me encourage you to take a few notes this morning uh, and have your Bible open the whole time. This is a thick passage and a wonderful passage uh, as we bring our study in 1 Timothy to a close. If you were to take a few seconds this afternoon and just look around the world, uh, the headlines would be sad. Uh, very grim. In, it's, it's in some ways surprising, in some ways not, that with all the advancements of technology, that still the suffering of humanity continues to increase. If anything, the increase in technology illuminates uh, the hurting and the suffering of people more and more. And we're not just talking about hurting and suffering on a different part of the planet. I just mean your neighborhood, your world, wherever you shop, you are rubbing shoulders every day with people who are hurting and broken. On the outside, they'll answer fine if you ask them how they are. On the inside, they are under incredible financial pressure. Marriages are hurting. Parenting is difficult. Retirement does not set well with them. They have struggles of many, many, many kinds. And when so many of our neighbors stop and look at the world around us and all the hurt and all the sorrow... Many of them might ask this question, why doesn't God do something about this? If he's good and if he's loving, why doesn't he somehow step into all of this and set things right? And the answer to that question is, God has, and he is doing something about it. Here's how God is addressing the ills of this world He has saved you, and he has sent you into it with the good news of Jesus Christ. You, church, you, brother and sister in Christ, you are God's answer to take hope and healing and forgiveness and life to all of these people around us who are hurting and broken without Jesus. You're the answer. When we gather like this as a church, we are... a a sort of lighthouse with the gospel shining into the deep reaches of the darkness with an, uh, an undeniable hope in Jesus Christ for all those who hear and believe. Now, here's where you would push back. You'd say, hey, time out, big boy. I've got problems of my own. Uh, I'm messed up. All the problems you just named, I've got those and more. Uh, I'm weak. Uh, I, I, I don't know enough about the Bible. Uh, I doubt I'm messed up in sin, I'm too young, I'm too old. Look, I wouldn't pick me, so why would God pick me for this task? When we talk like that, all we do is really show how brilliant God is and how consistent he is because he's chosen weak people like us always, people like Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Gideon and Deborah, and Ruth, and Samuel, and David, and Jeremiah, and a guy named Timothy. Timothy is a young minister. He's a ministry partner of the Apostle Paul. And Timothy is a broken man serving a broken church. The church in Ephesus that Timothy has been put in charge of 
is a hot mess. If you've been with us at any point in this study, you know that that church was broken from the inside by false teachers who promoted this warped legalism, this warped materialism. All they did was brew fighting all the time, just nastiness. And and the result was a church that was uh, completely powerless to do what God had saved and called them to do. It was actually a church that was a negative witness for Jesus Christ in the community in which they were set. And so Paul's written this letter to Timothy, and he's written it to the church as well. It's not just a letter to the man, it's to the man and his church to encourage them towards godliness and to give them strength for the work that God has called them to do. Paul gives them really practical advice. We've seen that week by week as Paul's addressed things as basic as prayer and church leadership and caring for the vulnerable among us. It's these very basic items where the church is glorious and powerful as it follows Jesus Christ. As Paul brings his letter to a close this morning here at the end of chapter 6, we get an epic pump-up speech from Paul. You're familiar with the genre pump-up speech, right? Braveheart, Rocky, Dirty Dozen. You name the movie, the Karate Kid, there's, this, there's a pump-up speech that gets to be, oh, let's do this, and then they storm off to victory. That's kind of, with a little less machismo, that's kind of what we have here at the end of chapter 6. Paul just begins to heap courage and boldness on Timothy in the church that we would keep our north star in the north so that we can accomplish the work God has called us to do. We need this. We need this passage. We we need this speech from Paul today. Not because we as a church are a one-to-one match for the church in Ephesus. We, We don't have the same types of problems and issues that are present there, but we still have the same need to keep Christ in our focus and our mission at the forefront to love each other as family, to care for each other in very practical and visible ways, to live godly lives so that the people around us would see and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Eternity's hanging the balance. And you and I need to be these kinds of people who follow God in courage and boldness so that the gospel can impact the world around us. My purpose today in preaching the end of First Timothy is to pump you up with encouragement, courage, motivation to move forward with the gospel in the unstoppable glory of God. We ought to walk out of here, legs pumping, ready to run with the gospel in hand. So I want to show you four ways that we individually and we corporately impact the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you are called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. I charge you to keep the command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. How do we, individually, corporately, how do we impact our world with the gospel? When we recognize we're flawed and broken and hurting ourselves, how do we make an impact in the lives of others with the story of Jesus Christ? Let me show you four ways. If you're taking notes this morning, I hope you are. The first is this. We're going to endure because Christ is returning. How do we impact the world with the gospel? We endure through our personal trials, through the struggles the world throws at us. We endure because Christ is returning. So Paul begins this section of the letter, this closing section, by calling Timothy to endurance. And he does so using four different commands in these verses. So in verse 11, there's two commands. He tells him, one, flee. Second, he says, pursue. And then there's two more commands in verse 12, fight and take hold. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold. Flee what? Flee sin, pursue righteousness, fight the good fight of the faith, and take hold of eternal life. These are the means by which Timothy pumps himself with endurance. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about endurance or perseverance? It's important that Uh, we clarify the definitions of these terms. In common speech, when we talk about endurance or perseverance, we're just talking plainly about making it through something that's not so desirable, like a sixth grade band concert or a dental exam, right? I endured it. I made it through. I got to the end, and now let's go get some ice cream, that type of thing. But Christian endurance is very different. The, the concept of Christian endurance, I mean, yes, there's this same, the same, similar idea of I'm going to make it through, but it's not just making it through the hard time. Rather, Christian endurance means holding on to the promises of God until every trial is finished. It's not just survival. It's survival anchored in Jesus Christ. My faith is in place, not moved, regardless of what comes at me. Christian endurance is holding on to the promises of God until every trial is finished. And how do we do that? In very practical terms, how do we endure? How do we hold on to the promises of God and believe Him no matter what? Well, let's look again at the commands Paul gave Timothy. First of all, he told him, flee. Verse 11, Flee from these things. What are the these things Paul's talking about? Well, it's the things we studied last week. If you remember the passage we were in last Sunday, earlier in chapter 6, 
Paul pinpoints, again, problems with the false teachers who are tearing apart the church in Ephesus. They love to fight. They love money. They love prestige. They are wicked through and through. Their lives are headed towards destruction. Paul says, Timothy, flee from these things. Regardless of what social clout they have, regardless of how you perceive the wicked to be flourishing, regardless of their threats against you, regardless of how it might seem going their way might be better for you, flee from these things. Oftentimes we consider running away as a cowardly act. In this instance, it is an act of holiness. Do not entertain your destroyer. Flee from sin. You will not endure, Christian, if you give the destroyer a foothold in your life. Flee from sin. The second command he gives him is to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So fleeing is not just a matter of aimless running into the wilderness. Fleeing involves a pursuit. It is a targeted pursuit of a holy life. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. That's the life Timothy And you and I are to set ourselves on, run away from this sinfulness, this brokenness, and pursue the things of God. The third command Paul tells Timothy is to fight the good fight of the faith. If I were to give you a quiz about the false teachers in Ephesus, number one, you would nail it because you're brilliant. Number two, you would know this, these false teachers love to fight. Again, Paul referenced it just last week in the passage we studied, chapter 6, verse 4. He says these false teachers love disputes and arguments over words. They love to fight. So it's not just enough to fight. When Paul says fight, he doesn't just mean, you know, put on your boxing gloves and go toe-to-toe, just stir something up. That's, it's the kind of fight that matters. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. That doesn't give you permission to be a jerk to people outside the faith or to people who view the world different than you do. Fight the good fight of the faith means this, that in your trial, in your pressure moment, you are fighting to believe the word of God, the promises of God, no matter what. You want to fight the good fight of the faith. I'm going to fight to believe. I'm going to cling to Christ. He's holding to me. So when doubts and fear and temptation come my way, I'm going to fight for Christ. I'm going to bury my nose in his word. I'm going to bend my knee in prayer. I'm going to choose to believe him no matter what. That's the good fight of the faith. When we fight the good fight of the faith, we are not fighting other people. We are never fighting other people. The good fight of the faith does not give bloody noses and broken arms to our opponents. The good fight of the faith holds the gospel of Jesus Christ before every person we come into contact with. That's the good fight of the faith. That's how we endure through all these trials. We flee from sin. We pursue righteousness. We fight the good fight of the faith. The fourth command Paul gave Timothy was to take hold of eternal life. You know, too many people think that eternal life starts the moment you die. But Paul tells Timothy, take hold of it now. Grab it. 
Hold on to it. You, the, it. Eternal life doesn't start someday. It is the now day. It's this day right here. And so there's so much courage that comes from knowing that I belong to Jesus today, this very minute. My position with him doesn't hang in the balance until someday when I die and stand in judgment. When I've put my faith, my trust in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, my salvation is settled and secure this day and for all eternity. Take hold of that right now. Too many people question where they stand with God. The one who believes on Christ has no questions remaining. Every question is yes in him. Finally, when Paul has put all this in front of Timothy, just machine-gunned him with these commands. He gives him this final charge uh, in, uh, in these verses, a final charge to hold on to it. Look at what he says, verse 13. Paul says, In the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the command Timothy is supposed to keep, I take Paul to be referencing those four commands, verses 11 and 12. These things I've just given you, keep that command. In order to add gravity to his charge to Timothy, Paul summons some witnesses. This is the second time he's done this in this very letter. The first witness he summons is God who gives life to all. He summons a second witness, Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Why did Paul describe Jesus that way? Why didn't he just say, Christ Jesus? Why does he choose that specific account, Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate? Why does he give that reference? Well, In this example, Jesus before Pilate, Timothy sees, one, the motivation, the courage, the example to hold fast to his confession, to hold fast to the faith, to fight the good fight of the faith regardless of what trial he's facing. Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and many other accusers on that day, and he never wavered once from the will of God to go to the cross. His trust in God didn't keep him from the cross. The son's trust in the father, his surrender to the will of the father, took him all the way to the cross. And standing in front of Pontius Pilate and all those other authorities who would make any other human being wilt, Jesus held firm to the work that God had given him to do. Here's Paul's reminder to Timothy. Timothy, the way of endurance is the way of Jesus. When you fight the good fight of the faith, you're walking the path that Jesus has already made for you. So, Timothy, you've got to endure through all these things. With God as a witness, with Jesus Christ who had a good confession before Pontius Pilate as a witness, keep this command. One of these days, you won't have to keep the command anymore. There's a statute of limitations on this because one day, Jesus comes back. You'll hear the trumpet sound. The sky will split open. Christ will return. You will see him with your own eyes. And at that point, he's got full control. Everything is under his power. He's setting everything right once and for all. 
It's his work to complete and finish, not yours. So until that day, Timothy, hold fast to this command. So you yourself, you're going through some mess. How are you going to endure? How are you going to hold on to the promises of God until your trials are finished? Well, you're going to follow Paul's advice. And you're going to remember your Savior who went to the cross. And you're going to remember your Savior who is coming again. And with Christ as your strength and example, you'll endure as you flee from sin and pursue righteousness and fight the good fight and take hold of eternal life. These are all the things we have in Christ. Now, I want to challenge you in a very practical sense to cultivate your endurance in the week ahead. And what I want you to do, here's my homework assignment to you. I want you to take the six things that Paul says we are to pursue. In verse 11, pursue these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. I want you to take those six things and one day a week take one of those items and I want you to pray and practice this very thing. Your homework is to use each of these six pursuits to inform your prayer life and your daily life. So tomorrow, Monday, your focus is going to be on righteousness. I'm going to pursue righteousness. And so in prayer, you're going to come to God. God, I'm here. I'm pursuing righteousness. I, I need to live a life that's right and holy according to your judgments and your word. And you're going to search the word for strength and encouragement in that. And then as you go about your daily business, you're thinking to yourself, what does it look like for me, a Christian, to pursue righteousness in the way I love my spouse, the way I care for my kids, the way I do my work, the way I rest, whatever the situation is, I'm going to pursue righteousness. That doesn't mean Tuesday comes and you get to put righteousness in the rearview mirror. You just get to add one more thing to the prayer schedule. Tuesday, godliness. Wednesday, faith. Thursday, love. Friday, endurance. Saturday, gentleness. And as you do this, I believe you'll find that your trials are actually the most fertile soil for the character of Christ to blossom in you. So would you take that challenge this week? Verse 11, every day this week, take one of these items and pursue it in prayer and in the practice of your daily life and see Christ's character blossom in you as you invest in your own endurance. How do we impact the world with the gospel? We endure There's a second way Paul encourages us to impact our world with the gospel, and that's this. We can be confident because God is amazing. We endure, and we're confident because God is amazing. So let's ask a question of Paul. We'd say, okay, Paul, so I'm supposed to endure until Jesus returns. How long is that going to be, Paul? And he answers in verse 15. He says, God will bring this about in his own time. Now, you and I might say, that's a cop-out answer. That's too easy. His own time. Yeah, God will do it in his own time. Okay. But don't miss this. The emphasis in that line in verse 15 is not on God's schedule, but God's ability. God will. (laughs) That's the all-caps word. Underline it, put it in bold, circle it, draw arrows towards it. God will bring this about in his own time. We don't have to worry about the schedule. 
We don't have to worry if Timothy's funeral happens before the sky splits and Christ returns. We don't have to worry about how long things take as if God has fallen asleep or he's disinterested or he's not even real. Those things are not even to enter our minds, but with confidence, we look at the state of affairs and we look at God's word and we know this, God will do it. God will accomplish what he has set out to do. There's no reason for us to doubt that. We can have full confidence in the God who does what he wills. Let's ask another question of Paul. Paul, how do you know he can do it? Well, because he's not some human ruler with a birthday and a funeral. He's not a leader appointed by people. He's so much more. Look at what Paul says in the middle of verse 15. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Paul just erupts in praise. His testimony is so fresh. He never loses the awe of God, the one to whom he's praying, the one in whom he's trusting. And when he allows himself sort of the, these moments of unfiltered praise, we get to benefit from it. I, I think this is where Paul writes amen, puts down his quill, and then runs a victory lap around whatever room he's in. Because the reality of God, the majesty, the power, the might, the magnitude of God is so real to Paul, and it should be to us as well. It's a problem. When you and I feel like our problems are greater than our God. The phone call comes, the diagnosis comes, the bad day hits, and it's so, we're so quick to make God little and to make our trials large. And why would we do that when we belong to the one who is the only sovereign, the only immortal one, the one who has eternal power? When we keep those headlines in front of us, every trial, every difficulty is put in its proper perspective. I've got the sovereign one as my God, and he will bring all these things about in his perfect time. This is the second time in Paul's letter that he's erupted in praise like this. The first time was back in chapter 1, verse 17. If he writes this letter in one sitting... Paul's just having a fit of praise over and over. He gets some words out. He praises God. He gets some words out. He praises God again. Paul is caught up in the glory of God as he thinks about him. You and I need verses 15 and 16 as a regular diet in our praying. This is how we fight the good fight of faith, how we find the strength to fight that fight because we belong to this God the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the President of presidents, if that makes more sense to you. He is above every earthly leader. He is so glorious, he is so majestic that he lives in unapproachable light. So don't be afraid. Don't fear anything that is coming at you. You belong to the God who is bigger than all of that. The God whose plans do not fail. The God whose timing is always perfect. That's your God. What do we have to be afraid of when the sovereign king of kings who alone is immortal is on our side? 
He's the God of eternal power. The eternal sovereign God is your God. And it begs the question of us as we dabble in this verse, is he your God? He's not like some divine lucky rabbit's foot in the sky. We just sort of come to and pay homage to in order to get good things to come our way. Uh, This sovereign, eternal God is is not a God that we can invent or a God that we can get to do our bidding. The question is not, do we have him working for us? The question is, have we surrendered our lives to him? Is he your God? And how could you know if he's your God? Here's how. The Bible tells us over and over that it's faith that makes the difference for every one of us. You see, here's the reality. You and I are so unlike the God who is sovereign and eternally powerful, unapproachable in eternal light. We are not like that. We are sinners through and through. And if I were to come to him and say, oh God of eternal and approachable light, I did three good things today. That should give me favor with you. And I'm delusional through and through. God, I've been a religiously minded person. I haven't been as bad as this other person. God, I had good intentions all along. God, I did my best. You've got to give me credit for that. No. There's an infinite gap between us and him caused by our sin. And we can't get there. We can't get to him unapproachable in every way. So what hope is there for us if he's unapproachable? The hope is that if he were to approach us, and he's done that. Jesus Christ is this eternal, sovereign God with flesh on. And he came to us. The story of Christianity is not how we get up the mountain to the top and find God there along with every other world religion. The story of Christianity is God has destroyed the mountain and every barrier that separated us from him, and he has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came to deal with our sin in a final way. That's why Jesus died on the cross, the death that our sin deserves. He took it on himself. The penalty that we have earned by our sin, he took that penalty, and he died our death so that we could live his life. How do you know if he's your God? If you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead three days later, and that's the work that saves you. If you believe this, then sister, your sins are forgiven. Brother, you're given new life, and that can happen this very day. We can't look at this portrait of God in verses 15 and 16 and just give a little subtle amen and and walk away smug and satisfied. It brings us to our knees in surrender before this God who created everything himself is uncreated. I urge you today, friend, do not... Do not take this moment for granted. It is God's grace that calls to you in this very moment. How incredible to think that the God who is sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, who has eternal honor and power, that that God knows you by name in this moment. He's calling you to be his daughter. He's calling you to be his son. Say yes to him today, would you? Don't walk out of here with your eternity undecided. 
hear the call of God on your heart today and say yes to him. And you can be confident because he's amazing. I didn't know what other word to use than amazing to sum up in one word all that's described in verses 15 and 16. Every superlative fails. He's incredible. He alone is God. Is he your God? How are we impacting the world with the gospel? We're enduring. We're confident in this amazing God. Third, we're told to be generous because a greater treasure awaits. We're to be generous because there's a greater treasure that awaits. So Paul's next encouragement to Timothy involves money matters. And again, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that Paul had something to say about money then. But there's a difference between what he said in the previous passage and what he says in this one. In the previous passage, Paul is describing how the false teachers or these non-believers, how they have a warped view of money. In today's passage, Paul is giving instructions for how believers are to approach money and think about their possessions. I think it's really important that we make note that Christianity never outlaws wealth. Paul speaks of believers who have means in this passage. Verse 17 instructs those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So Paul's answer is not tell those who are rich in this age to get rid of everything. Paul's answer is teach them how to enjoy the things God has given them and how to employ them for the sake of the kingdom. Now, I think maybe this is the part where some people among us might say, that's right, Cody, you tell them. You tell those rich people how it is. You set them straight. Can't wait to see what they do after you tell this to them. I want to recommend a website to you. It's called globalrichlist.com. Globalrichlist.com. If you go to that website and type your personal income, your annual income, into the little blank and hit enter, then it will show how your income compares to the rest of the world. If you make $50,000 a year, you are in the top 0.31% of richest people in the world by income. Not top 10%, not top 5%. You're not even a one percenter. $50,000 a year worldwide, you are a 0.31 percenter. Every one of us in this room qualifies for those who are rich in this present age. So do not be arrogant and think that this passage applies to someone else. Paul has you and I in the crosshairs, every single one of us. And even if you would say, but I don't have a lot, here's what's true about our hearts. We can make incredible gods out of the tiniest piles of money. So we need to hear, all of us need to hear and heed what Paul says here to people with anything in their pocket. And so Paul says, instruct them that our hope is not in our coins, but it's in our God who gives us everything to enjoy. We're to be rich in good works. I love the way Paul uses this language. If you remember back in chapter 2, Paul speaks to women uh, about beauty. And, And he says, you are to be dressed in good works. Here, he's talking about money, and he says you are to be rich in good works. 
Those who have money and who have things are to be generous and willing to share. And Paul's making the point here to all of us that our personal income is not for the purpose of our wealth. God has given us income to meet our needs, for us to enjoy. That's what he says here in verse 17. But he's also given us income in order to fund the global expanse of the gospel. You get a paycheck so that the gospel can go to the far ends of the earth, even all the way across the street to your neighbor. That's why you get paid. That's why God's given you income. If we were to do an audit of our spending habits, what would someone know about our faith by the way we spend and where we invest and who we support? Our money ought to tell a story of our faith. It ought to tell of the work that we do. We ought to be rich in good works. And as I thought about this, this section of the passage, I, I was reminded again of what a sad place we live in. On your way out today, you're going to drive past beautiful homes that have every appearance of success. And I promise you, not because I have secret knowledge, but just because we know how people are, behind these beautiful doors are broken lives and broken marriages and broken parents and addictions and sins and sorrows of all kinds. Don't think for a second that a pretty house makes for a good life. And so if you have friends who are not believers and they are people of financial success, I want to encourage you to pray for their salvation and then create the opportunity to shepherd that camel through the eye of the needle. You get what I'm saying? We need a harvest of souls here. This is a mission filled in this area where wealth is off the charts by comparison. And those people are not to be forgotten or to looked at with contempt, but with pity. It's a horrible thing to have money in the bank and yet be spiritually bankrupt. They need to be warned of the trappings of their wealth. They need to hear the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I urge you, pray for them by name and create the opportunity to share the gospel with them. So how do we impact our world with the gospel? Endure. We're confident. We're generous. And then finally, Paul tells Timothy, guard the gospel because God is gracious. Guard the gospel because God is gracious. So here's this final command to Timothy. And with it is really a summary statement of everything Paul said in the whole letter. The command to Timothy is guard what's been entrusted to you. So what's been entrusted to Timothy? I I take Paul to be referencing the gospel here. He's to guard the gospel, and so doing, he guards the church and the people that are under his shepherding. And what does it mean for Timothy to guard it? I, I would say two things. One, it means to preach it. The gospel is not guarded if it's silenced. So to guard it means to proclaim it, to make the gospel known. The second is fidelity to the gospel, that the story gets told right. It's not manipulated or warped or poisoned in any way. You preach the faithful gospel. That's how We guard the gospel. And why is it so important to guard the gospel? Well, Paul says in verse 20 that people, in doing this, people are, you're avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, it is that false knowledge. Some people have departed from the faith. That's why you got to guard the gospel. Preach it. Be faithful to it. Because without it, people leave the faith. Does any of that sound familiar? It should sound familiar. 
Paul's talked about this over and over throughout this letter. Here at the very, very end of the letter, Paul closes by giving us a summary statement of all that he's said already. So guard the gospel because people are attacking it, and as a result, some are leaving the faith. And what is it that's going to empower Timothy to do this, to guard the gospel? The very last line of the letter, grace be with you all. It's important to note the last line is not written solely to Timothy. Paul doesn't say grace be with you in the singular. It's grace be with you all in the plural. This is a letter to Timothy, but it is for the whole church. It's for us. And it's God's grace with Timothy and the church that will enable them to guard the gospel. God's grace is going to give Timothy the strength to lead, the wisdom to set the example for believers, courage to fight the good fight of the faith. It's God's grace that's going to pick Timothy up when he stumbles. It's God's grace that's going to heal a hurting church or that make a family out of people from all kinds of backgrounds. It's God's grace that gives us Christ-like elders and deacons. It's God's grace that grows up men and women who live for the glory of God and care for those who are hurting among us. It's God's grace that welcomes back those who have wandered from the faith. And I wonder if that might describe you this morning. Have you wandered from the faith? You find yourself today, your, your affections for Christ have dimmed, your outlook on life has grown jaded, sin has taken hold in you. Your God of grace is ready to welcome you home like a father waiting for a lost child. The grace of God makes all the difference. So how does the church position itself to impact the world with the gospel? And Paul's given us the pump-up speech of pump-up speeches this morning. He tells us to be marked by endurance because Christ is returning and to be confident because our God is amazing, to be generous because a greater treasure awaits, and to guard the gospel because God is gracious to help us in this task. So I just want you to be aware of, of what's going to happen this morning. Later this morning, uh, we're going to walk out of these doors as a group of people with a vision of the returning Christ, a group of people with a song about the unsearchable glory of God, a group of people who possess a knowledge of true life in Christ, not in possessions, but in Christ, or a group of people who know the love of a God of grace. And those are the kinds of people that impact this world with the gospel. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for Paul's letter to Timothy, for its call to godliness, for the way it highlights uh, brokenness in us, and thank you for the way that it sets our eyes on you. Father, this morning, we need your courage, we need your strength. I pray that we would have Paul's sight that when we think about you, when we look to you in your word or in prayer, God, that, that we would have the same confidence and praise that Paul does. Because that's not something that's limited just to the apostle. That's a glory and a praise that's for every one of your children. Today, give us that vision of you. I pray for any of my friends in here today that don't know you as their Savior. Maybe they've been religious or they're, at the very least they're spiritually minded. Uh, 
today. You've spoken clearly through your word. Give them a vision of you and call them to you by faith that they would be saved and given eternal life today. And Lord, help us as your children to endure, to be confident, to be generous, to walk in grace, knowing that as we do, you impact this world. You save souls. You set things right. Give us the strength to do this until the day you return for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.